Okay, everybody got it? Uh, those videos are helpful. They're available online. You can find them at the Bible Project. And um, pray that that overview helps those of us who have not been as familiar or re-familiarized with the message of 2 Corinthians. But we don't have to say all that today. Um, we're going to take bite-sized chunks. And Lord willing, for the majority of 2020, starting today, each Lord's Day between now and at least the middle of the summer, uh, maybe into the fall, we will concern ourselves with passage after passage after passage of the strength of God made perfect in our weakness. That's the theme of 2 Corinthians. Uh, last year, we walked through 1 Corinthians and we saw what we think the main theme of that book is. Passage after passage. 1 Corinthians is about how the gospel of Jesus applies to all of life. Life as individual Christ followers, life as a local church. So 1 Corinthians is basically built around a bunch of issues that were going on in the life of the church at Corinth. And Paul's letter to them, 1 Corinthians, brings the gospel to bear on every issue. So the gospel is for your life. 2 Corinthians is about the power of God in a local church. But as the video and as especially the, the Bible makes very clear, God's power is not for strong people. God's power is not for self-made people. God's power is not for people who feel like they got it all together. God's power is perfected in our weakness as we press into Christ. And so spiritual power in the local church is what we're going to be looking at. And that power is made known by God's grace in our weakness. Let me just give you some examples and then we'll look at the first 11 verses of the book. I want you to think about these examples of the power of the risen Jesus in the weakness of his followers. I'll just go straight through 2 Corinthians and just give you a little smattering. In chapter 1. The comfort of Christ is made manifest in the middle of the suffering and affliction of his people. In chapter 2, the presence of Jesus comes powerfully into the sorrow, even the death of his people. In chapter 3, the power of the Holy Spirit transforms us. The power of God at work in your life to make you like Christ as you look away from yourself and on to the glory of Jesus in the Word. In chapter 4, the clay pot, the jar of clay. You and I are just decorated dust. You know that, right? We're made out of the ground. Woman was made from the rib of the man who was made from the dirt. And Paul says these jars of clay, these earthen vessels, these clay pots have the presence of God in them. For those who belong to Jesus, and that displays Christ's power. Chapter 5, the power of Christ to instantly glorify us the nanosecond we die. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Chapter 6, the power of Christ in our hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, tumults, labor, sleeplessness, hunger. Chapter 7, the power of Christ to cultivate true holiness in the middle of our most severe hardships. Chapter 8, the power of Christ in, quote, a great deal of affliction and deep poverty. That's where Jesus shows up. 
Chapter 9, the power of Christ to overcome our greed and our covetousness. Chapter 10, the power of Christ to live with gospel-advancing courage when we're insulted and falsely accused. The more you tell people about Jesus, the more bad stuff people are going to say about you so that nobody will listen to you. But chapter 10 says that's where Jesus shows up and shows up his power. Chapter 11, the power of Christ to serve others, not when they appreciate it, but when they're ungrateful and hard-hearted. <laughs> chapter 12, the power of Christ to boast in our weakness, the power of Christ. Chapter 13, the power of Christ to boast in Christ crucified. Who was crucified because of his own weakness? Yet who lives, the text says, because of the power of God. So the power of God in the local church, spiritual power in the congregation happens in our weakness as we lean into Christ. And 2 Corinthians is going to regularly call us week after week after week to embrace our weaknesses, quote, so that the power of Christ may rest on us. There's no other way. Well, the sermon text today is chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. Hear the word of the living God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. Verse 8. We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively, beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life, Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. You also joining in helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me at his throne as we ask for his help? Father, thank you for being God, our Father. And thank you, as the text says, that you, God the Son, are our Lord, Jesus Christ. 
Thank you also, Father, for being, quote, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Thank you also for so working in the lives of your people to put us into circumstances time and again so that we will not trust ourselves, but God who raises the dead. With the Apostle Paul and with Timothy, we also say to you, Lord, that you are God on whom we have set our hope. And we do believe that in time and for eternity, you will deliver us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Three parts of these 11 verses are verses 1 and 2, verses 3 to 7, verses 8 through 11. In verses 1 and 2, we find this God-saturated greeting. Just saying hello is one of Paul's favorite ways to introduce people to God. In verses 1 and 2, the introduction makes no mistake that the people God comforts are people who are very uncomfortable. But before Paul dives into that theme, he wants to greet them with the God who does the good work of gracious care. Look how Paul opens the letter. It's not with a rush into his doctrinal point, which really begins in verse 3. Rather, it's with a simple hello to this precious church from God himself. It would be really easy, I, I suppose, to skip past this introduction and all the introductions of all the books of the Bible and the New Testament especially, just to move on to verse 3. But let's take a brief look at a deep fountain that is in just verses 1 and 2. This is written to, verse 1, the church of God, which is at Corinth. See that in verse 1? So right out of the gate, Paul identifies himself, verse 1, as an apostle of Christ Jesus. That means he's sent out by Jesus himself as an ambassador. He not only identifies himself with Christ as his servant, but he identifies them as the church of God. Meaning even though he is well aware of all of their foibles, all the sin that's been in the church, all the challenges, even their rejection of Paul, he does believe that this church is made up predominantly of truly regenerate Christians. People who have been born again and belong to the same God to whom he belongs. To the church of God, which is at Corinth. They belong to and serve the same master as Paul. For those who may not remember, Paul had a pretty challenging relationship with this church. As we just saw in the introductory video, and for those who are aware of 1 Corinthians, you know that they had previously questioned his ministry. They had listened to people who came into town primarily to discredit Paul. They invited them to the church and paid them for speaking against Paul. They not only question his ministry, it wasn't about self-promotion or vindicating his name. That wasn't Paul's burden. This church listened to people who discredited his message. Many of them rejected the counsel that Paul wrote to them in the first letter, and we know that because he had a sorrowful visit and then a tearful letter and then 2 Corinthians. Really, 1 and 2 Corinthians are at least 2 and 4 Corinthians. Because in 1 Corinthians, he says, in my previous letter. And in 2 Corinthians, he says, 
in the tearful and sorrowful visit, maybe a letter accompanying that. So we're, who knows how many times he wrote to them. And many of them rejected his counsel. They thought that Paul's weaknesses were a reason to discredit his message. And on and on and on we could go about these relational challenges. But instead of writing them off, have you given up on people who give you just a little bit of sandpaper in your relationship? Paul didn't give up on those people. He opens his letter by stating that he believes they're regenerate, that they belong to God, that they're a true church purchased by Jesus. Now look, if we can get on the same page about that, we can endure anything together. This comes out even more clearly in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. What a beautiful pronoun. O-U-R. And the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's explicit affirmation of his confidence that he and the Corinthians belong to and serve the very same God. But then Paul does something absolutely breathtaking at the close of this introduction. It's worth a few thousand sermons. I'm just going to make a brief observation. Verse 2, look at the pronoun. Verse 3, look at the pronoun. Verse 2, God, our Father. Verse 3, God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whose God is He? He's yours and Jesus is God. The same God to whom Jesus belongs is the God to whom you belong. But not just you, we. He's our God. That's why I said if we're rightly related to Him through Christ, we can endure anything together because we are literally in the same family. There's a whole body of divinity in that little pronoun. Jesus, prior to His ascension into heaven, told Mary to run off and tell the disciples after His resurrection, you go tell them this. I ascend to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. The blessed gospel truth that we must spend the rest of our lives and all eternity seeking to mine the depths of is this doctrine. You and I, let me say this as clearly as I know how, will never be deified. You're never going to become God. There are several false religions that teach that. Period. You will never be deified. And all who are in Christ are as related to God as Jesus is. Those two things must both be true. You will never become God, and you are as much a part of the family of God as Jesus is. He's his God. He's our God. In the Old Covenant, it was a privileged honor, more so than anything on earth, to be Abraham's offspring, to be part of Israel. This is because God would say things like this. I am the God of Abraham. So if you belong to Abraham, then you belong to God. If by faith you trust the God that Abraham trusted, then the God of Abraham is your God. But in the New Covenant, it doesn't talk that way. It talks this way. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you trust the God that Jesus trusted, then you're as much in the family as Jesus is. So dear ones, I want to encourage us as I move on from this point to exploit this privilege. Tim Keller says it by illustration that's well known. The only person who would 
barge into the king's bedroom and wake him up at three o'clock in the morning to ask for a glass of water is his child. And Keller says, you and I have that kind of access to the same God to whom Jesus belongs. Paul opens with this little hello, this gospel greeting. It is so loaded as I've just briefly tried to touch. And it's for It's because of passages like this that every service that we hold here at Grace Church always begins with a gospel welcome and a scriptural call to worship. We try to say hello from God at the beginning of the service, whichever elder is leading the service on that particular Lord's Day. And it's two of the most important statements. It lasts about two minutes, three minutes, that happen in the whole service, which is... An incentive to be here early so that when God begins to speak, you're listening. When he says, you're my child, come worship me. The point of 2 Corinthians, as I've said, is spiritual power flows into the lives of the church as we embrace our need for God. We're weak, he's strong. We're empty, he's full. We need power, it belongs to him. So let's look at how Paul begins to unpack this truth after he says hello, number two, verses three to seven. Not only a God-saturated greeting, but God himself, our comfort. Verses three to seven unpacks this point so beautifully. The scripture is always so precise, isn't it, in the wording that the Holy Spirit uses. The Holy Spirit wants us to know in this passage that comforting the people of God is God's business. It's what he does. But that's not the main point of this text. Comforting God's people is not only something that God does, it's part and parcel to who he is. Look at verse 3. He is the Father of mercies. That's who he is. And he is the God of all comfort. That's who he is, not just what he does. Father of mercies, God of all comfort. To use big theology words, this is God relating to you in soteriology and God relating to you in anthropology, in your salvation and in your humanity. He is the Father of mercies. He saved you. He did it with his own mercy. And He sustains you. He comforts you and cares for you and provides for you in your salvation and in your sanctification. God is all you need. Who He is and what He does. Verse 4 explains what He does because of who He is in verse 3. He, God, verse 4, comforts us in, don't you love little words? All our affliction. What affliction are you going through? God comforts you in it. In all our affliction. This God-saturated comfort is just so beautiful. Paul tells this church later, chapter 11, for example, that he had personally experienced hardships of every kind. Just go read the list. As a Christ follower, Paul sought to leverage his entire life The same way every Christian seeks to leverage their life. And so when chapter 13 says examine yourself, it means something kind of like this. 
Do you seek, like Paul did, to leverage your entire life for the advance of the gospel of Christ in the world? Is that why you believe God left you here after he saved you? Why didn't he just transport you to glory? Because he now wants to employ you as his ambassador in the world as you lean into Jesus in your weakness and receive his power and commend him to a world that's dying and headed to hell. Paul sought to leverage his entire life to advance the gospel of Christ in the world. Therefore, he was a constant target of Satan and all who are enemies of the cross. So his opening boast in 2 Corinthians is not how strong he is under trial, but that in every trial, the only thing in his experience that outmatched his own, Paul's enormous inability, was how merciful his heavenly father is and how full of comfort his nature is. He's the God of all comfort and he comforts us in all our afflictions. And again, I just say read chapter 11 to see what kind of afflictions Paul's talking about. The purpose of the comfort of God is also made plain, isn't it? Why does God comfort his people? Well, we could just back up and say that's because of who he is. But he also has a purpose in why he does it and it's stated very clearly, isn't it, in verse four. So that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Isn't this beautiful? God wants you to know that he gives you grace in your life, in your time of need, not because you're the end of all his saving purposes. And when he's done with you, he's done with everything he's doing in the world, but he's making you an ambassador of his grace into the lives of other people. He's actually filling you and meeting your need to minister to you, but also as a means to an end to make you a minister of his grace to others so that you can be an ambassador who gives his grace to others in their time of need. So I would say it this way, all God's people go to seminary and the school is called suffering. And you can't skip class. And God sees to it that he puts you in it. And when you go through section 101, then he sees to it that he enrolls you in section 201. And when you pass section 201, he puts you in section 301 and he's gonna keep you in class until the day you go to glory. He intends to make you like Christ. And all God saves, he also sanctifies. And all whom he has justified, Romans 8 tells us, he will one day glorify. He is going to see to it that his people get the opportunity, whether we take advantage of it or not is another story, but all of his people will have the perfect tailor-made opportunity to get as much of Jesus in this life as saved sinners can get. And he intends to fill you with as much of the fullness of Christ as he can give to you in any and every moment. As Clyde used to say to me, he'll make you as much like Jesus as he can without killing you in the process. But he does it, verse 4, so that you can be a conduit of his grace to others. And you know what it's like when God allows you to step into the suffering of another brother or sister. And you realize, not really because of what you said or how clever you are, not even the verses you quoted because you're good at quoting Bible verses, but you know what it's like if you've been there. When you're able to nestle up next to another suffering saint 
and you see God show up. And maybe in the moment you can't detect everything that's happening, but after the fact, they're able to come back to you and to tell you, Jesus came to me when you came to me. And then you see your grandchildren, as it were, spiritually speaking, and this person taking God's grace to the next person. And then you start to see it not so linear, but dynamic. And you see God leavening the world with his grace through his people. Look, God can zap you with a lightning bolt of grace if he wants to. He just hasn't chose to do it that way. He wants to involve more people, as we're about to see in this passage, in his great work of grace to all of his people, so that, as the passage says, more people will give him thanks for being such a good God. Have you meditated on this particular aspect of the beauty of the gospel of Jesus? Namely, as Charles Simeon said, it is none but those who have been in deep waters, who are capable of entering into the feelings of a tempest-tossed soul. Have you meditated on this particular aspect of the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ until your heart burns within you? with faith toward him and love toward God. Particularly, that better than anybody else could ever do it, Jesus is able to enter into every sorrow you ever face because he became the man of sorrows and set his face to the cross to purchase for you the grace that you would need every single time until eternity. What a redeemer. Therefore, extending God's grace into the lives of others, verse 4, especially suffering saints, is one of the most Christ-like things you can do on this side of eternity. Open your eyes. We do and we should pray for opportunities to share the gospel and opportunities to minister. I believe Paul's just saying, look, here they are. A more amazing part of this is that the gospel must be such a reservoir of God's love for us that his provision will always be larger than the bucket of suffering we find ourselves in. And God must always be ready to pour out his grace to fill us to the brim with his supply because verse 5 says, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, Literary parallel, here we go. So also, our comfort is abundant through Christ. How abundant? Perfectly suited for my need. I got this much abundant need. Is there enough grace in Jesus? It just so happens to be, it's exactly the amount that I need. Every time it appears that the next challenge or new need is going to exhaust the resources of our God or that he's fed up with us for coming back empty again. He's ready and willing to prove his all-sufficient grace to us right then, right there, to show off his marvelous riches of grace to us in Christ Jesus, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians. You can't get this out of a textbook. You can't find it on an internet blog site you get grace from one and only one source. Did you see the last two words of verse 5? Through Christ. He's 
the only fountain of grace. If you don't get to Jesus in your pain, then you will not get to the power source that you must have to persevere through it. He is the fullness of the grace of God. Romans 8, 17. If we suffer with Christ, we shall reign with Him and be glorified with Him. It's the Him that sweetens the pot. Look carefully at how the channel of God's grace flows though through you to others. Verse 6. If we're afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or, if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. The inflow does not match the outflow, does it? This literary parallel breaks down. It's not a one-for-one -one correlation. The formula, the equation, doesn't work. Because you plug in numbers here and they equal this. You plug in different numbers over here and they still equal this. Do you see how this flow works? No matter what we go through, verse 6, affliction or comfort. The only product that comes out on the other side for the people of God is comfort. So you can't say, well, if you knew what I was going through, then you would be a little edgy with God's people too. Harsh, unkind, unspirit-filled, and no fruits of the Holy Spirit. Fight on that. If you're afflicted, here's what God produces through you to others. Comfort. If you're comforted, here's what God produces through you to others. Comfort. Do you know what this is? This is the heart of a believer who has been saved by grace, knowing they're a hell-deserving sinner, and so tenderized by the sweet mercies of Jesus as they have met him in various trials, James 1, that all the believer has to offer to his or her fellow pilgrims on the way to the celestial city of heaven is the comfort of Christ. Oh, to be that kind of man. I love being around people like that, don't you? Just tender, full of mercy. I want to be that kind of man. One commentator said, fear not then to follow Christ. Though you should have to take up the heaviest cross that can ever be laid upon you. For if you will but bear it after Jesus, you shall find this to be true. Christ's yoke is easy and his burden is light. The sermon title that Charles Simeon preached on this passage, verses 1 to 11, was titled, The Trials and Consolations of Ministers Useful to Their People. And I thought, well, man, you're making this all about the minister people. And then, as I read the passage and the whole book, which I encourage you to read or listen to on repeat for the next six to nine months as we walk through it, it's very obvious that Paul is using his own example with Jesus in trials to comfort the Corinthians. And so in this case, it is the consolation of ministers useful to the people as God meets them in their trials. So here's just a little simple illustration before we move to our final consideration. The title of Simeon's sermon got me thinking about this passage from a new light. And I wonder if God in his providence 
has seen fit to arrange such that the elders of every single local church are beset with various weaknesses and challenges, sorrows and pains, losses and crosses, so that they may be all the more useful to the particular flock of precious souls that God has given them charge to care for. Then that got me thinking about your pastors and the souls that make up this precious congregation. And one page that's always pulled up on my gadget is our prayer directory. Looked at your faces and your children. I'm not suggesting that we've walked through the hardships that you've endured. I'm not suggesting that anyone should or could ever fully accurately say, I know exactly what you're going through. We don't. Every trial is unique, tailor-made for us to make us more like Christ. But I am wondering if God has ordained our lives for the sake of extending his care and comfort to your life so intricately that if we just thought about it for a second, it might lead us down a thousand tributaries of related ideas. For example, one of our elders knows what it's like to taste the grace of Jesus in the death of his spouse. It got me thinking. Maybe that grace is going to flow into one of your lives. And you need that brother at that time for that need for God's care to touch you. And I thought about another elder who's experienced a massive disruption in the harmony of his extended family owing to no sin of his own. And has been sweetly touched and tenderized by the grace of Jesus in ways that no human could have ever cultivated. And I wonder how that grace given to him might make its way into my heart or your heart in my time of need. Or that same brother having shepherded his precious wife through the death of her sister, a sibling. And the mercy that's been received by them and others in our church in that extended family might be stored up in some reservoir of grace somewhere so that when we walk through a valley of the shadow of death, that grace is just going to spill over into my life or yours. I've got another elder in mind whose biological family lives in no contiguous state to this one, far off, removed from them, but not only distant removed, also having had the tumultuous turmoil of damage done in relationships in a variety of ways, how might the Spirit suction from that well of grace given to that brother to inject the perfect ointment into my life in a particular time in the future or yours? Or what about an elder whose wife has a chronic illness? who lived through the brokenness of his own parents' marriage and has found the fountain of Christ to be all sufficient for his need. How might we benefit from that grace? Or in my life, I've been to the valley of Baca, the valley of tears, the valley of weeping, a a season of of some form, measure, degree, I don't know how to quantify, of depression. I've experienced the empty well of rejection from a father who I haven't seen since I was 10. Just yesterday, it was prayed kind of in code. For those of you who were wondering what Trey was praying about, two of my aunts died yesterday in separate situations. 
unrelated to each other? Might the mercy deposited in me by our sovereign be a gift that he would extend to somebody else? And then I start thinking, what if he's doing that for everybody? Not just the pastors. And what if everything I ever need to live a life pleasing to God is readily available to me from him through you? That revolutionizes everything about everything about how I think about you and how I pray for you and how I endure with you and how I'm patient with you and how I want you in my life and how I don't stiff arm you and how I pursue you and how I... You get the point. Lean into the grace of Christ that comes to you from God dispensed to you through other believers in your local church. I believe that's what Paul's saying to these Corinthians. Finally, God-centered hope, verses 8 through 11. A greeting, the God of all comfort, and hope. Sometimes the despair runs so deep that it seems the darkness of death itself is closing in on you, not proverbially, literally. Isn't that what Paul says in verse 8? so that we despaired even of life. He thought he was going to die in Asia. Kistemacher's commentary says this, doing God's will in a sinful world where spiritual warfare rages inevitably incurs suffering of one kind or another. Paul's a exhibit A. He despaired even of life. Most people think that this refers to the stuff recorded in the book of Acts that happened to Paul and his companions in Ephesus, which was a capital in the Asian province. What happened to Paul in Ephesus? Acts 19, there was a riot instigated by Demetrius. They tried to kill the man publicly in a coliseum. 1 Corinthians 15, whether it's figurative or literal, we don't know, but he said he was fighting with wild beasts. 2 Corinthians 11.32, he was put in prison. 2 Corinthians 12.7-10, he was blessed with a physical infirmity that he begged God three times to take away from him. It's also a prominent view that it may not be any of those things, but perhaps it's the, a reference to the tension and history of it between him and the Corinthian church. That he cared so much about God's glory in them that it almost killed him to see them flirt with deterring from Jesus. They rejected his counsel. They rejected his care. But now they were tender and receptive to the Lord's word through him. Whatever it was, it was a cause for deep fear of losing life, despair. And verse 9 tells us why it happened. Why does God let his kids get so full of despair that they think they're going to die? Praise God for telling us the answer. So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. That's why he does it. There's way too much self-trust in me. When you get saved, you get all of Jesus. When you get sanctified, he gets more of you. 
It's okay to say, give me more of Jesus because God knows you mean give Jesus more of me. And there's way too much me in me. And there's way too much you in you. And there's way too much trust in you and me trust in me. And so God's going to do something for us. And it is such a gift. This isn't a martyr complex. This is Bible. God's going to give you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to trust you or him. And here's the way you trust him. You do an about face. And you look at an empty tomb outside of Jerusalem. He snatched the corpse of Jesus to life from the grave. He raised him from the dead. He can do anything for you. He explicitly connects the hope that he experienced in his life-threatening despair to the gospel power of God to raise from the dead. The logic is clear. Paul knew God raised Jesus from the dead. That's the gospel. Paul therefore trusted that God would raise him from the dead too if he were to die in Asia. I despaired even of life. So be it. It is not death to die. Christianity is not for those who are looking for a bed of roses. If you've battled long and hard against sin and you're not dead yet, you're not done. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, have you? Hebrews 12.3 You're not dead yet, are you? All the blood's not drained out of you yet, is it? Hebrews 12.3 Keep fighting sin. Hebrews 12.3 To whom would God write such a sentence? People whose houses were burned down? Whose possessions were plundered? Whose relatives were put in jail? Like That's the people that I'm tempted to say, man, you've been through a lot. Why don't you just take a break from all that serious pursuit of Jesus stuff? No. When your house gets burned and your property is plundered and your relatives are in jail for following Jesus, you hadn't died yet, so don't you quit either. Hebrews 12.3 How do you do it? How do you keep going? Looking unto Jesus, whom, Hebrews 1-10, God raised from the dead as your high priest forevermore. The important focus of verse 10 is that none of this passage is about seeking comfort. And if you left today thinking, man, I need to pursue comfort from God, I think you would subtly miss the point. The focus is not on deliverance from trials and sufferings. The focus is God. Do you see it in verse 10? Who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us? He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. Paul has a clear confidence that God will deliver him. It says it three times in one verse. That doesn't at all mean that it has to be physical deliverance. One way or another in this lifetime, 10,000 times in this lifetime, or in glory, God will see to it that every Christian knows Jesus fully. Including on the last day, in the power of his resurrection, so that we too may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Philippians 3, 10 and 11. So Paul's saying, here come all the trials. God's able to raise people from the dead. So my hope is on him. He's going to comfort me because that's his nature. 
He's going to comfort me because he does that in every affliction of all of his people. Verse 4. He's going to comfort me so that I can be used by him in his endless mercy and creativity as a channel of his comfort into others. Lives, lives of other Christians who are suffering. But comfort's not the goal. God is the goal. He on whom we've set our hope. Paul's declaring boldly that his hope is not in deliverance, but it is in God who raises the dead, who delivers his people from peril, howsoever he pleases. Jim Elliot got it right, didn't he? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Why did God bring comfort to Paul and Timothy? And how did he do it? Why he did it is in verse 11. So that lots of people would give God thanks. You see, God's the goal. God be praised like the book of Exodus. I'm going to deliver you out so that you may worship me. The goal of salvation is worship. Verse 11, why he does the comforting is so a lot of people will say, thank you, God. Praise you, God. You see God doing God's work for God's glory. But how did he do it? It's also in verse 11. Through your prayers. The church at Corinth was praying for Paul. God heard their prayers. God brought comfort to Paul. Paul tells the church at Corinth, God answered your prayer. Now let's all give him thanks. It's one of the rich verses of the theology of corporate prayer in Scripture. The Corinthian church interceded for Paul. God heard their prayers, bestowed favor on Paul's life according to their prayers, so that, so that, so that the whole church would give thanks to God. You see, here's the secret. It's wide open. No veil. God's doing God's work with or without you or me. But when you and I join our hearts together in prayer for God to do the work that he's promised to do, then we see him do the work. Our spiritual antenna are sensitized to realize that's the fingerprint of God. That's the hand of God at work. And we all give him thanks and glory. He's doing the work whether we see it or not. Prayer sensitizes our antenna to see and to praise. God was working the way he always works. That is, he was working to bring the apostle and the church closer to God. And so the point is, you're going to have trials and we're all very weak. Good news. God's strength is for the weak people. And he's just going to keep unfolding it passage after passage for the next 13 chapters. Would you join me at the throne of grace as we pray? Father, we do thank you that you care so tenderly for us. And that you so order our lives, the blessings and the crosses, to chase our heart and show us your goodness in times of blessing, to show us your sufficiency in times of suffering. And oh, Father, would you help us as a local church to put our trust in God who raises the dead? To look to Jesus, our risen Redeemer. Help us to do that and help us to help each other do that. And Lord, would you also, by your Spirit, cause us to set our hope on God. And then, 
we trust there's a few billion ways you might use us to bless one another and pour your grace into each other's lives through the little channel of our life. So just keep doing it. Don't let us stiff arm the church. Don't let us close our heart. Don't let us build a wall or a fence between us and another brother or sister. Cause us to receive your care for us through one another. And help us, Lord, at the end of the day, when we see you do what you do, to join together in giving thanks to God, to praising you and worshiping you and glorifying you. Lord, thank you for Jesus. What a redeemer. What an all-sufficient Savior. What a fountain of endless supply you are to have enough in you to meet the needs of everyone of all your people for all time. What an enormous heart you have. And we love you and praise you and ask that you would allow us to plumb the depths of your love for us. And to know, we, to know you as fully and to be as conformed to you as safe sinners can be. We bless you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.